0: Come <laughs>
1: Hello again, and welcome to episode two of the DTF podcast, Dissecting the Frog. I am Sam Norton, your illustrious host. Hello, welcome. Voo, coo, boo, boo, right? That's, uh, that's a French thing. No, it's not. Um, hi, welcome. Today we're going to be talking about one-liner comics. That's what we're going to be dissecting the shit out of. Uh, my top three favorite one-liner comics. I love one-liners, and uh, I, I, I just adore them. Now, here's the thing. I uh, can get into this before we get into that. I believe every comic, doesn't matter who you are or who you were, I believe every comic, whenever they first start, dabbles in one liners, right? It's the first thing you test out because I believe it's where you learn how to write a joke simplest thing set up punchline right at some point you know there may be some people that go up there and go into stories right away but i believe at some point everybody's a one-liner comic and then it seems that most comedians you know start doing one-liners and then go off and try to pontificate or be you know the social satirist or really tell it how it is you know how most comics do, but I believe the true writers, the best editors, the most profound writing like people in comedy stick with one-liners. That's their forte. They know how to get to the laughter as quickly as possible, and I absolutely adore it. I am also one of those comics who started off as a one-liner and then went off into my own little world, but we're going to go back to... I think the purest form of stand-up comedy, one-liner comics. Now, when we're talking about it, I want to make my own definition for what I think a one-liner comic is for this podcast, right? Now, there's the very, very traditional Henny Youngman, the guy with the violin back in the 19... 19- oh, man, he's he's been around forever. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away. But uh, you, may, you may know him as Henny Youngman, but if you've ever seen the movie Goodfellas, he's the guy... Playing the violin, and he's very famous for saying, "Take my wife, please." That that one-liner, right? That is the purest sense of a one-liner ever. But we are not really going to use that as a um, as a going, right? We're gonna we're gonna use my definition, and I believe a one-liner by my definition is having one thought with one payoff maybe not exactly one line but one thought with one payoff now there are a lot of people that string one liners together to make a bigger thought these three comics although they've done it occasionally mostly what they do is they they come up with an idea twist it move on maybe tag it okay that's what we're talking about really short one thought one payoff jokes um so who we're going to be talking about on this episode first up we're going to be talking about steven wright the wonderful Stephen wright uh from boston as a as a comic started off in boston came up through the 80s really exploded that scene a wonderful wonderful brilliant mind we'll get into him later uh then we're going to move on to rodney dangerfield the late great Rodney Dangerfield, who unfortunately is no longer with us, but he is always with us through comedy and spirit. And we're going to dissect everything about that. Very confident man. Uh, Look forward to that. And then we're going to round it out with one of my personal favorites, uh, Mitch Hedberg. Unfortunately, we also lost him. We'll talk about that later. But that man really dove us in to his own weird little world through little snippets of sentences. So we're going to dive into him later, but we're going to first start off with, like I said, Stephen Wright. Wonderful, wonderful Stephen Wright. Uh, A lot of you uh, hopefully know who he is. If you don't know, uh, like I said, he started off in Boston, was actually born in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He, uh, He really was the first one to break out of that scene back in the 80s, which kind of blew up everything. But he went on The Tonight Show and really, really did well. Now, Steven has had a lot of success in stand-up, but he's also actually an Oscar winner. He had a short-lived action film Uh, or not action film, live action film, uh, that was uh, nominated and awarded the Oscar. I believe that was back in 1989. Yes, 1989, uh, called The Appointments of Dennis Jennings. So this man is truly a good writer, Uh, knows what he's doing. Uh, He is, he's an amazing talent, and uh, one of, if not the best, one-liner comics uh, ever out there. Uh, in anybody's estimation, he would always be uh, be up there on it. Um, now, we're going to listen to uh, Stephen Wright's clip that I have. This is a wonderful, wonderful uh, set. I want you guys to pay attention to how he gets in and out of his one-liners. They are very quick, very quick, but I want you to pay attention to it because we're going to dissect the shit out of it, so I want you guys to pay attention to kind of what he's doing psychologically, all right? And we'll come back to it. Enjoy Stephen Wright.
2: My birthday recently, for my birthday, I got a humidifier and a (laughs) dehumidifier. Put them in the same room, let them fight it out. (laughs) Then I filled my humidifier with wax, now my room's all shiny. Went to a museum where they had all the heads and arms from the statues that are in all the other museums. <laughs> I had trouble going off from there because I had parked my car on a tow zone. When I came back, the entire area was gone. <laughs> so I walked home. Everywhere is walking distance, if you have the time. (laughs) They should iron this. (laughs) I used to work for the factory where they make hydrants, but you couldn't park anywhere near the place. (laughs) I used to be a proofreader for a skywriting company. Years ago, I worked in a natural organic health food store in Seattle, Washington. And one day, a man walked in and he said, if I melt dry ice, can I swim without getting wet? (laughs) I said, I don't know. Let me ask Tony. (laughs) Two days later, I was fired for eating cotton candy and drinking straight Bosco on the job. I figured I'd leave the area because I had no ties there anyway except for this girl I was seeing. We had conflicting attitudes. I really wasn't into meditation. She really wasn't into being alive.
1: (laughs) That was Stephen Wright from his 1985 HBO special uh, talking a bunch of gibberish. Uh, Love him. Love him to death. Now let's dive into them Alright, so Stephen Wright Amazing, amazing writer, amazing editor The, the, the thing I like about uh, One-liner comics in general Right, is When you're at the pinnacle of doing it You're able To elicit an emotion That people aren't apt to give up That's what laughter is You're so much of a an emotion Like an involuntary spasm Out of the sphincter in your throat right it's an involuntary emotion that you elicit and one liner comics are able to do that with as many like the least amount of words as possible like that's an amazing and steven gets applause breaks all the time so you're say like you're able to make a whole group of people in an audience give you up an emotion they were reluctant to give you in the first place and then they're so taken back by the ability for you to do that in the first place that they then have to start applauding your ability to do it and they, and it does it with like what eight words you know what i mean in comparison, what what other art form are you able to do that within eight? I mean, it's like a haiku. It's a haiku that people are applauding. <laughs> Can you imagine reading a haiku? Someone reading you a haiku, and then a, like making three hundred people go like, "That's amazing!" Only stand up comedy, and really, almost only fucking Stephen Wright. That man is a genius. Um, now, here's the thing with Stephen: what I take from him is he's not just a one-liner comic, right? I mean, he is. But psychologically, I always looked at him as like a verbal prankster. Like, almost all of his jokes he's ever written is in this vein of an idea that is, that it could just be a great prank. You know what I mean? Like the hydrant. You know, I, <laughs> I used to work at a... Hydrant facility I never knew where to park You know what I mean? Because you can't park in front of a hydrant That sounds like it could just be a good sketch Or a good prank on YouTube Just put a bunch of hydrants somewhere And see if anybody can park there The other one, right before that uh, I went to a museum that just had the heads and arms From other museums Again, another kind of funny prank that you can do And that's most of his jokes And I love that idea of it Because he's almost... He's like the verbal equivalent to me of Buster Keaton. Now, if you guys don't know who Buster Keaton is, he was a super famous, still is, but was a super famous silent film actor. Uh, he was against Charlie Chaplin. Everybody knows Charlie Chaplin with the tramp and the you know walking back and forth. But where Charlie Chaplin did more character based stuff, Michael Michael Keaton. That's not <laughs> that's not Michael Keaton. Buster Keaton. Buster Keaton did much more physical and environmental gags. It it was more in the line of what Stephen Wright pulls off verbally. So where Charlie Chaplin would like twirl his cane, get into these physical gags, but it was based off his character, Buster Keaton would put himself... As uh, I mean, I guess he was technically called Old Stoneface, but uh, which is another th- actually it was another thing he had in common with Stephen Wright, just letting the joke sell. But for example, Buster Keaton, there's a scene in one of his old mo- movies where he ran out of a building because he ended up ruining the plans of these robbers and hopped onto the back of a car. Now you see from our perspective of the camera, hops onto the back of the car grabs onto the wheel, which on, like, those old jalopies was just, like, on the trunk. So he grabs onto it, squats down, is on this wheel, and then you just see the car pull off while he remains stationary. Now, you, over a little bit of time, realize that he hopped onto, like, a tire advertisement, and he thought it was connected to the car. The car drives off, and he's sitting there, and then he just has to run away, right? That's a prank that would... Normally, probably not work in our reality, but he sets the reality up for us for the prank to work and be funny. That's what Stephen Wright does verbally. Verbally, Stephen Wright is setting up, I work at a hydrant factory. Okay, that's the scenario we're in. As I'm sure they exist somewhere, but... All right there's there's our setup. you work at a hydrant factory right it's the same with buster keaton there's a car with a there's a car for a getaway okay there we go there's a car just waiting outside it pulls off drives away there's the twist there's the punch Stephen Wright does. I work at a hydrant factory. And I never knew where to park. Okay, so we are to surmise that at this hydrant factory, there's just hydrants everywhere, and the police would be pissed off if you parked in front of a non-working hydrant. It's the same quick snap of logic. He sets up, he puts it down, moves on. Amazing. That's It's so simplistic, like most comedy, it's so simplistic, but when you, the more that you get into depth with it, it becomes... It more impressive, more intricate, and more beautiful. It's, it's such, and he did, the the beauty of this, right? I, I truly believe anybody can be, can write a funny joke. Anybody can do it. Time, <laughs> time would dictate that you can do that. But the thing I'm arguing about Steven and all these guys, in fact, is that the consistency of which he does it, And his process is the thing that I've fallen over. This is just one of the better jokes, both of these jokes that I'm actually... You guys watch the whole set, but the hydrant joke and the no-arms joke is kind of, in in my mind, it's indicative of the rest of his catalog. And this was back in 1985. The man has grown, for sure. He does a little bit more... um, longer and multimedia stuff, I believe he brings out a guitar now. So he's evolved as a comic, but I'm saying the crux of his jokes have remained constant because it works. He figured out his voice, which was, again, this verbal prankster and the ability to set up a scenario for him to knock it out of your head. And to be able to do that within, what, let's say at most 48 words is... A, a true stroke of genius. It, it really is a haiku poem of of laughter, and to elicit a applause break after a pro, applause break is it, it's awe inspiring in, in the best possible way imaginable. Just sitting there, just aghast at the ability for this man to make that happen. So that's what that's what I learned from watching Stephen Wright. The, the you set up you set up a scenario and then you prank people on it in their own mind, you'll get a laugh every time. Pranks are funny. Stephen Wright's funny. That's what he does. All right, let's 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 move on to your next one-liner, the great, late Rodney Dangerfield. Now, you guys should know who Rodney Dangerfield is uh, off of him being super famous for doing the uh, I don't get no respect, I don't get no respect. He was also in movies like Caddyshack, classic, uh, back-to-school, classic, ladybugs, classic, uh, wonderful, wonderful comic. Now, unfortunately, Rodney is no longer with us. He he did pass away. Um, he passed away back in 2004. He lived a long life. He was 82, but he, he did pass away uh, back in 2004, and he didn't start into comedy until his late 40s. He was actually a shoe salesman, uh, or a traveling salesman. I know he sold other stuff, but I know he sold shoes at one point. And he, he didn't start later into life and finally started. Uh, he was from New York, started in New York. He actually had a, opened up his own uh, comedy club, which is in Manhattan still. It's actually a couple of blocks down from my friend Lane Pichelle called Rodney's uh, Comedy Club. And it's still open, still going, but that, that, that's where uh, his stomping grounds were. He's, if, if you were to think of the most cliche comic possible, right, it would be Rodney Dangerfield. Old guy, three-piece suit, tugging on his tie with a catchphrase, which Rodney's was, I don't get no respect. Now, with that said, Rodney was anything but cl- cliche, he was anything but ordinary, and he was anything but unoriginal, this man, uh, we're going to listen to uh, a clip of his, but before we do, I, I just want you guys to know, even though you will hear his catchphrase, the I don't get no respect, pay attention to how he's telling his jokes, and maybe, you know, listen listen and laugh for sure, but pay attention to the overall arching character he is presenting to everybody, and we're going to dissect the shit out of that because that was always the most impressive thing and continues to be the most impressive thing to me, especially when you know the backstory of him, which we will also get into. So enjoy, Rodney. We will be right back.
0: I'll tell you, I'm all right now, but last week I was in rough shape, you know? <laughs> now, last week I told my wife you need a home improvement loan. She gave me $1,000 to move out. <laughs> i tell you, my wife, there's always something, you know. Well, the other day I called her up. I said to her, honey, I've been thinking the last time we had sex. I'm getting excited. She said, who is this? <laughs> i tell you, my wife, she never went for me. Well, the first time I called her up, she told me, come on over. There's nobody home. I went over. There was nobody home.
1: <laughs> my
0: wife, she drives me nuts. Well, she was afraid of the dark. She saw me naked. Now she's afraid of the light. <laughs> i tell you. That's all right, that's okay. I'll tell you. No, I tell you, actually, I shouldn't tell jokes about my wife. I mean, she's attached to a machine that keeps her alive the refrigerator. (laughs) And I tell you, my wife, she can't cook either. My house, we pray after we eat. (laughs) I bought a pressure cooker, now I eat off the ceiling. (laughs) What a lousy cook. I don't think meatloaf should glow in the dark. She can't cook at all. She made chocolate mousse and antler got stuck in my throat. <laughs> I'll tell you my trouble. I got the wrong doctor. You know my doctor, Dr. Vinnie Boombas. know my doctor? <laughs> and I saw him last week. I told him, Doc, every day I wake up, I look in the mirror, I want to throw up. What's wrong with me? He said, I don't know, but your eyesight is perfect. <laughs> Are you kidding? Are you kidding? I know I'm ugly. I asked a bartender to make me a zombie. told me God beat him to it. <laughs> I'll tell you, you know when you're ugly, all right? Well, Halloween, my wife sends the kids out dressed like me. I mean, I'll tell you. I'll tell you the whole story, all right? The whole story, i you... All right. I mean it. I mean, you know when you're ugly. Well, last Halloween, a kid tried to pull my face off. And my kids, they flip a coin to see who has to kiss me goodnight. And I was an ugly kid, too. I told my old man, never took me to the zoo. He said, if they want you, they'll come and get you. Oh,
1: that's the story of my life. No respect. no respect. That was Rodney Dangerfield on his own show, The Rodney Show, Rodney Dangerfield Show, back in 1982. Uh, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful clip. Here's the thing, right? You guys could see Rodney's whole character that he presented to the world was that he's this bum who the world's against, right? Just the world's against him. But I surmise this motherfucker duped the whole fucking world, right? Because every time I've seen him, in that clip especially, every time I've seen him, yeah, he's got self-deprecating jokes, but he's also pulling down the world around him, and everybody's applauding him. Everybody's like, oh, you're the underdog, you're great. When he, he... I mean, yeah, maybe he was the underdog, but he was a, he was a dick to everybody, right? So he has some stuff against him, right? He's got the the joke about ah, I'm so ugly. Uh kids, my kids are or my wife is dressing my kids up like me for Halloween. I go outside, people trying to pull off my face, right? But like 80% of his set, if you pay attention, was him being a dick to his wife. She can't cook. I kind of hate her. <laughs> like, Just like, oh, fuck, I, I don't like this lady at all, right? And then he talks about his doctor, and he's, like, shitting on his doctor for shitting on him. Like, my Dr. bots, right? Which is a reoccurring character, if you guys didn't know. It was his way of anytime he talked about going to the doctor, about doctors giving him bad information or just being dicks to him. But I I always got the... Not all of his jokes, I'm sure a lot of them were just kind of pulled out of thin air. He was a conduit for his jokes, but some of them, you would, I feel like he actually lived. Like, his wife was a bad cook, and the way that he was able to shit on her was going like, oh man, it's rough being me that I gotta eat this gruel, ugh. But the whole time, he's basically just going like, ah, fuck her, man, She's a terrible cook. My doctor's a dick. He's taking money out of my pocket for this horse shit. And you get the idea that he's been to a doctor, and the doctor's like, hey, maybe you shouldn't drink as much whiskey because you look schlubby. And he's like, I'm paying you for this, you dumb motherfucker. Like, it's such a great, great character to have. And the reason I think... Again, these are my own analysis, but I, I, I can... I'm very confident in this that he created this underdog character and it really was a way for him to cause chaos and tear the world down around him while people applaud him, right? That's my theory on this. The reason I think that is because the backstory of Rodney is even better. Like, he had this self deprecation comedy with, like, none of, like, all of the confidence in the world behind it. You know what I mean? Like, he goes out there, and he's able to, there's no bashfulness, there's no shame. It's very much, oh, this is how the world is. I don't get no respect. But he's like a used car salesman. And when I said he has all of the confidence, I meant exactly what I said. He doesn't have some confidence. He has all of it. He has his confidence. He's got your confidence. He's got the person sitting next to you's confidence. He's the most confident person in the world. And this is why I say all of this. Now, I haven't had actual proof of this, picture or whatever, but I've done some research, I've talked to other comics, and I've heard multiple sources telling me this similar story. And not similar story like happened once. I'm saying a reoccurring thing that happened in his later career, right? Rodney Dangerfield was known for wearing nice suits, Loosened tie so he could tug on it and be that quintessential old guy, right? So he was known for wearing suits, right? Suit and tie guy. Well, later in his career, he would like people I know that used to work with him, right? There's they go into the green room, which is just backstage little lounge area for the performers. They'd go in there, and Rodney would be sitting in just a bathrobe, right? Sometimes it happens, you know, you don't want to be in your uniform all the time So they would sit down, have a conversation with Rodney And Rodney, being a fucking alpha male confidence that I'm telling you he was Would, like, open his legs like a man does, have a drink on his leg And his balls would fall out He was not wearing a goddamn thing under that robe, Right? So that's a little, <laughs> a little taboo to do, to do in private company in the green room, right? Well, so people who opened with him, right, they, they would go out first, they would do their opening set, come back and come get Rodney, and they'd be like, all right, Rodney, it's time for you to go on. This motherfucker's still in his bathrobe, they're panicking and going like, oh, you got to go on, and he just is like, yeah, I know, and just goes out on stage in a bathrobe with nothing on, and if you're wondering, holy shit, did his balls fall out, yeah, his balls fell out over the course of an hour, uh, I heard one time he had his balls out, and they said on accident, but you, you know when your balls are outside of a robe for a good 10 minutes towards the end of his set, that's fucking confident, I don't care who you are, all right, scratch, Let's scratch everything, right? Scratch being able to... Like, people's biggest fear in life is speaking in front of a uh, a crowd, right? There's that famous cliche, most people would rather be inside the coffin than giving the eulogy. I believe that's Jerry Seinfeld's bit, right? So, barring the fact that he's speaking in front of 200 to 2,000 people at one time, Right? He's also doing that in the bathrobe, which is a nightmare that most people have is being naked in front of the class. That's basically what Rodney's doing. He's doing it because he wants to. He's doing it because he's pranking you. So not only that, okay? So (laughs) these are just layers of what I think of this man, right? Not only is he doing that, On top of that, he's still doing the same act of, oh, the world's against me type thing. Now, the reason it works with him in a suit is because he's really trying. He's the underdog. He's got the suit. It looks like he just came off the line, like, selling shit, and he loosened this tie and was just telling you how it is. Like, man, my wife's a bad cook. My boss is against me. My doctor's a dick. And the world is just against me. Got to loosen my tie, telling you how it is. And you kind of get behind... Like, man, you, you're you the underdog, Rodney. I, I get it, right? So the whole persona does that. Now, where I say it's the act and not the persona, so we get rid of I don't get no respect, we get rid of the loose and tie, we get rid of all the cliches that people don't give him credit for, right? So we get rid of all that just in a bathrobe showing his balls to a crowd. He's still getting laughs off of his jokes. Why is he still getting laughs? Because the jokes are so good, so well written, that you have to laugh, right? They're one right after another. Boom. It's rhythmic. He's got it, right? Not only that, he's got a great cadence. That voice. Oh, I tell you, right? That voice is so rhythmic. And then on top of that, the persona is not in the overall aesthetic. The persona is written into the jokes themselves. Think about that. He is as funny in a suit and tie with all the mall than he is in a bathroom showing you his balls 10 minutes at a time. That's a sign of a good meal, right? You look at something like a good steak, right? Good steak comes out sizzling, Maybe it's got some aromic flowers around it. And then you got the nice stacked greens, all different colors, right? You got green beans with grilled banana peppers and shit, and it just looks amazing. You get a little ramekin of, uh, you know, a, a beef du jour, or whatever the fuck it's called. I don't know. I don't go to rich fancy fuck. I go to fucking Texas Roadhouse. But you know what I'm talking about. You get the nice. Filet mignon sizzling, right? That was Rodney in a suit, right? Still a steak, tasting good, looks fucking good, fits the part. That looks like a fucking steak. But you know what made Rodney great? Is that if you threw that steak on the back of a hubcap, right? And you ate it by a dumpster, like someone just sizzled it up on a, <laughs> on a hobo flame <laughs> over over a Oh, a barrel of fire like you're a 1910 homeless man with missing gloves and a knapsack riding a train, right? Someone puts that steak down, right? That steak may not look as good, but when you taste it, you'll be right you'll be right back into it because that steak is good whether it's dressed up and fancy or whether it's fucking on the back of a hubcap. That was Rodney Dangerfield's genius. Rodney was able to give the persona on television clean in a suit or give that persona in a smoke-filled club showing you his balls. That That is something I could try to analyze it all day on how he did it, right? And I'm sure I could come up with something. Fuck, I'm sure you guys could come up with something. But Rodney Dangerfield truly, truly does not get enough respect. And I, it, <laughs> it is a pun, sure, but he truly doesn't get enough respect for what he did, all right? Because that... The, those stories heighten and enhance everything that he was. He made what he was a cliche. Do you know how? Do you know how amazing you have to be he, to make something a cliche? It was like him, Jerry Seinfeld, Richard Pryor, uh, George Collin, and Lenny Bruce. Like those those names should always be up there, and Rodney somehow gets forgotten because he doesn't get enough respect fuck man that that amount of confidence is wonderful so rodney i miss you i i love you to death i can't believe you did that and if i could understand an inkling of how you pulled the shit off that you did uh i would be a rich man but you were one of a kind and that shows in your work so uh we'll move on we'll move move on to our last and final comic one of my favorites actually top Top 10 easily for me. Uh, Mitch Hedberg. Mitch Hedberg, wonderful, wonderful comic. We are actually going to listen to a clip of his real quick, and then we'll come back and dissect the shit out of him. So I will introduce Mitch real quick by saying uh, he he, did, he has passed away. He passed away back in 2005. It was uh, my senior year in high school. The reason I remember that was because uh, when he passed away, I was actually really, really into him. Uh, for only a year I think I discovered him In 2003, 2004 And he passed away And I was not a part Of the newspaper At my high school But I was so like Damn it Fuck This guy died I wanted to make A tribute for him The only way That I thought Was to make a comedy um, Comic strip Of him in our our Newspaper At our high school And luckily I knew enough people In the newspaper And they didn't have Enough content People actually Wanting to do shit But they let me do it And I still have it Somewhere At my parents' house, but it was uh, one of his bits about koala bears. We're not going to play it today, but uh, I implore you to look it up. Just type in Mitch Hedberg, uh, H-E-D-B-E-R-G. You guys can see it in the title. Uh, And then type in koala bear. You guys can listen to it. But right now, you guys are going to listen to uh, Mitch Hedberg. Uh, So listen to that. We'll come back, and we'll talk about it and analyze it. All right, thank you.
3: One time a guy handed me a picture of me. he said, here's a picture of me when I was younger. Every picture is of you when you were younger. Ain't that, ain't that, ain't that about time someone said that? I think Pringles' initial intention was to make tennis balls. <laughs> But on the day that the rubber was supposed to show up, a big truckload of potatoes arrived. (laughs) And Pringles said, what the hell? Cut them up. I think a rotisserie is like a really morbid Ferris wheel for chickens. It's a very scary piece of machinery. We will take the chicken, impale it, and then rotate it. And I'll be damned if I'm not hungry. <laughs> because spinning chicken carcasses make my mouth water. <laughs> if you go to the grocery store and you stand in front of the lunch meat section for too long, you start to get pissed off at turkeys. You see like turkey ham, turkey pastrami, turkey bologna. Someone needs to tell the turkeys, man, just be yourself.
1: That was Mitch Hedberg at New Faces Montreal. Uh, Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful comic. Just a fucking weirdo. Uh, Mitch's perspective is what made his one-liners masterful to me. Okay? So we had Rodney, who created a persona so he could be more himself, if that makes sense. Then we had, you know, Stephen Wright, who created these scenarios to kind of get his perspective across, right? These events, the the pranks and everything. But Mitch really just went out there, didn't really create scenarios. He just had a weird way of looking at it. And there is... Awkwardly enough, there is a thing that kind of encapsulates Mitch's perspective, which a guy named Jean-Paul Sartre, he was a French philosopher, came up with uh, existential philosophy, like an existential absurdist philosophy. Basically, it stated that things are stranger than we think they are in the world, right? The mundane, the everyday... The the things that we're used to in the world are actually way more insane if you actually think about it. And the one example that Jean-Paul used to give, it was the most famous one. I'm going to edit it down quite a bit. But he would describe what it's like to have a meal with your wife or spouse or partner, Right. That is an everyday mundane thing. It happens every night for most people. I know it happens every night, hopefully, with me and my wife. And you don't ever think about it. But if you were to tear down and take it down to its molecular density, right? You you break it apart as much as possible. You dissect the frog, huh? See what I did there? If you take it down, you see how absurd and hilarious everything is. So uh, how he would do it is he would say, okay, Me and my wife go out to dinner at a restaurant. Well, what we're doing is we are two mammals needing caloric intake for energy so that way we can can continue to leave. So we both sit down on two dead pieces of trees that have been shaved down into things that can work against gravity. One is a flat surface for our exterior Gluteus Maximus, and the other is so that we can have a surface to lay other dead animals and dead vegetation that has been put onto a fire. You see where I'm going with this? Like, the more you spell out exactly what's happening, the more absurd something mundane actually seems. And that is 100% Mitch's viewpoint. He, (laughs) by hook or by crook, he came upon it. Now... Here's the thing. Mitch Hedberg did pass away. Uh, There's a reason I'm saying this. He did pass away from a drug overdose back in 2005. Now, the sad thing is we lost someone to drugs. It's happened too much in this business and in the entertainment business, and it fucking sucks. But the one thing I do believe that Mitch got out of it was an enlightened mind. And whether it enhanced or uh, drugs helped him discover this absurdist viewpoint I will never know but I do believe that is one good thing that came out of it was and I wish he would have just found a way to not go full blower with it but man he, he had such a unique perspective on the world that he looked at the absurdity he was the mad hatter he was the white rabbit we went down his rabbit hole and there was a few jokes that uh, really kind of stated this but my favorite what I mean he didn't even get an applause break for it but my favorite that showcases that was the Pringles can right I believe Pringles's first intention was to make tennis balls right now that joke is great you you look at it I'm sure a lot of us have thought it and he was the first one to say it and that's where most of us stopped but what made him even better was then he dove even deeper down the rabbit hole and thought, like, yeah, I bet a truck showed up, and then instead of rubber balls, they had potato chips and said, fuck it, make, or they had potatoes, and they said, fuck it, make some chips, right? Diving that little extra is what made him great, is what made it fantastic. The rotisserie chicken thing. The, oh, the, the turkey thing is another one. He's standing at the grocery store. You can just picture him standing the grocery store just going like uh turkey bacon turkey pastrami and i wish i could just tell a turkey hey man be yourself right that's it's an absurd thing to think it's you logically whenever you're presented with something like that you go oh, okay it's the way they cure the meat the way they prepare it the flavor that they're going for but he looks at it like ah this is, it's just turkey and if it's not just turkey we should tell it to be itself that's a it's a beautiful way of looking at the world. And he gave it to all of us. I thought that was a master class in how to be absurd. And the jokes, the joke presented of it is wonderful. He was able, again, these are all one-liners, so he was able with as few as words as possible to present you with something you recognize, his own viewpoint, and the absurd twists that he puts on that absurd viewpoint. So that's, you know, that's four things in maybe two sentences and at most six sentences. Can you do that? Can anybody, you know what I mean, present <laughs> present the familiar, present the absurd, twist on the absurd, and then create an environment on the absurd. You just create, he, motherfucker just created a universe in like six sentences and was able to do it over and over and over and over again. Wonderful. Wonderful comic, and it sucks that we lost him. But as as goes life, you know, as goes this podcast. We, we have to leave now. I thank all of you for uh, listening to another episode of Dissecting the Frog. I hope that I ruined comedy a little bit more for you, I, <laughs> and I hope you keep coming back for this punishment to listen to my musings and pontifications and flat-out... Fucking overdoing it on comedy, but I love it to death, and I hope uh, I hope you do too, and I hope you join me again. Um, I love you all. Peace. Be safe. Bye.